you know, what is a memory you have of social media? I have memories on social media, but what I don't are your memory of social media. Is there a time where you're like, Oh, re- I remember that time I was having that great conversation with someone or that connection <laughs> I made. You don't, right? Everything out there that matters, even everything on social media, even everything on Instagram is the stuff that happens in the real world. Um, uh, it's that one. That's the only one that matters. It's the only world that matters. Right. Um, and I think that's, you know, the thing that, that we, we had lost or we're losing sight of and, and, and maybe in some way we're sort of realizing that and trying to reclaim it. Back to episode eight of the Look Up podcast. This was a really fun episode. I had the opportunity to interview David Sachs. David is a Washington Post bestselling author of a book called Revenge of the Analog. He wrote it about two and a half years ago, and it really focused on the resurgence of analog entertainment records, creative tools like moleskin notebooks in-person meetings coming back as opposed to conference calls and distributed teams. A lot of trends that we've seen over the last few years is people kind of have a bit of more of an aversion or a deeper understanding of the negative consequences of the march forward of technology. What's really cool about David is it's not it's not that he's a Luddite. I mean, he obviously uses technology. We just filmed this on Zoom and, and use Zencast to record. We referenced it in the episode. It's actually my first episode not done in person. It's more of trying to say it's not technology good, analog bad, this binary outcome, or technology bad, analog good. It's how do we merge the two to live better lives um, and why are both important? And so, you know, David is uh, he's quite a character, and I think you'll enjoy the episode. Uh, we talk about a bit about his use of technology, um, how he allows his kids, his two young kids, to interact with their technology. Uh, We talk a bit about how things have evolved since he wrote the book. Uh, We talk about entrepreneurship, and we have a lot of fun along the way. So I hope you enjoy the episode. And without any more of my babbling, here's David Sachs. So I think... um, we have to talk a little bit about the irony here. This is this is the first episode that I've not recorded in person. Um, mm. We're here on Zoom for video, Zencaster for audio. We've been going back and forth on email um, all morning. Had some- and now we'd like to thank our new sponsors, Zoom and Zencaster. Yeah, I think Zoom's doing just fine. I don't think they're going to need me to and Squarespace and Casper to sponsor. <laughs> yeah, oh, you, they sponsor you, Mark. That's how podcasting works. Oh, okay, got it. Yeah, I think I don't. I don't know if they need to sponsor me. I think they. I think Zoom has enough has enough reach already. <laughs> Once it, someone's got to spend that venture capital money. And it all, it's always it's the podcasters. They're just a, it's a slush fund. <laughs> right it's true. It's just more more money flowing into the system. And <laughs> well, you know, I don't know if there's enough podcasts out there, but I figured I'd throw one more no, one more into the mix. Definitely not. Definitely not. Yeah. But I figured it's funny. I mean, we were supposed to meet in Toronto, um, so I appreciate you taking the time on a video conference on an early, early Thursday morning in Toronto. Not that early. What's the, uh, what's the weather like over there? I mean, I feel like that's the it's customary question nice. I have to ask. Yeah, It's pretty nice. Good spring day, sunny, a little chilly, but warming up. Wonderful. I think it's nice oh, not in Los Angeles. It's uh, we've got some gray skies and oh no, pretty chilly it's as all well. Over. I know nobody's gonna, nobody's gonna nobody's gonna leave the house today. That's what happens when <laughs> you, you get a day off from school and when it's cloudy. No, but anyways, thank you again for coming on. I, I think what I'd like to start with is so you wrote Revenge of the Analog now um, two and a half years ago, mm-hmm. and so you know this is a, l- a little late in the game. I'm sure you're probably 
oh, you know, you're done with the book tour, you're on to your next book, which we'll talk about later. Um, but two and a half years later, has any anything that you wrote about changed or any of your opinions changed on the topic? Um, it's an interesting question. I was talking about this with someone yesterday. You know, I think uh, the sort of core of the book about the resurgence of analog goods and ideas, um, you know, especially the sort of visible things like uh, the return of vinyl records and books in bookstores. You know, at the time that that the book came out, that was really in the forefront. And it wasn't, I think for some people it was surprising, but for other people it was like, yes, okay, this is why this is happening. Great. But, you know, the, the other part of the book was really about the revenge of analog ideas. And that was sort of, hey, there's value in doing things face-to-face. There's value in the real. And there's a danger in, you know, oversubscribing to the benevolence of digital technology. Mm-hmm. And, you know, at the time that that came out, it was still, I guess, a bit of a fringe opinion. Um uh, and, you know, wait, but, you know, social media is good and look at all the stuff it does and look at all the wonderful things about technology. And ironically, or unfortunately for me, the book came out, it, the book was published on the day of uh, the election of, of uh, President Trump, uh. right? And that really marked a sea change in um, all sorts of things. Um, <laughs> but especially, I think it was the official end of the honeymoon of Silicon Valley. Um, it, it laid bare and in the weeks and months afterward is, you know, evidence of all this sort of voter manipulation and misinformation and, you know, data harvesting and spying and all this wonderful, you know, stuff came out that sort of benevolence of technology and digital technology is this unalloyed good. I mean, nobody can say that with a straight face today and be taken seriously. You know, the, the sort of Ted talk evangelical broadcast that, Oh, this new thing's going to change the world and we're all going to end up happier. I don't think anybody's naive enough to believe that now, um, or at least the majority. And so what, what really shifted wasn't that, Oh, all of a sudden more people started buying vinyl records. You know, the, the growth of that has continued at the same sort of pace as it has over the past you know, 12 or 15 years, Mm. um, really when I started looking at the phenomenon. But I think that bigger question, which is what you're looking at, of what is this stuff that we brought into our lives and what is it doing to us? And let's actually go back and reevaluate that. That bigger question is something that's really come to the fore. Um, uh, And and so that's something that, uh, you know, I, I expected an experience, but I didn't expect it to happen so quickly and in such a big way. Yeah, I think that's all it took was the return of fascism and a couple of genocides that were organized on social media. (laughs) That's crazy. Um, (laughs) That's it. That's all it took. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, it's definitely, I think, you know, you can't read the news today without seeing a Silicon Valley elite kind of held over the fire at this point. Um, I think most people, you know, even two days ago, there was a lot of heat on Elon Musk even though he's not really developing, you know, he's, he's at least going after, you know, space and electric cars and whatnot, but at least, you know, Zuckerberg was on the hot seat um, and still is on the hot seat for a lot of the practices of Facebook. So that makes sense. I think it's, I think it's for the best that we're, you know, we're at least asking questions now. Yeah. What are, what are the negative impacts of this technology? One thing you mentioned is the the values of um, analog communication. You know, you mentioned in the book and you just mentioned it here. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, well, I mean, analog communication, you know, in essence is conversation between people, right? Face-to-face conversation, or I guess on a telephone if you want to use that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I... I think it's something that, again, we thought we would be able to replace or we thought we would be able to substitute for, you know, digital communication, whether it was speaking on Skype or FaceTime or something like Zoom um, or or social media, right? That that you could, you know, collate everything and, and all your communication into these various formats, email, messaging, 
um, social media. And that would, you know, be an effective substitute for the types of communications that you do by going places, going to meetings, meeting up with people that, that they were really interchangeable. Um, and the same information was sort of getting across and, um, and especially in the workplace, right? This was, this was sort of, you know, like the paperless office, uh, the, the great sort of, you know, thing from really the, the 2000 on what wasn't even the paperless office. It was the personless office. It was the idea that, you know, it's more efficient to have Skype conferences or zoom conferences or chat, um, threads or Slack threads Mm -hmm. than it is to, you know, go over and waste time at this meeting and have this bad coffee or go to a conference and spend two days at some hotel (laughs) in the suburbs of Philadelphia where we met a few weeks ago, uh, (laughs) or, you know, Las Vegas or, or somewhere else. Um, you know, that, that's so inefficient. This is more efficient. But what people realize and have realized is that there is no substitute for face-to-face. And again, this is the type of thing that you you only sort of see when you take it away, right? That's the thing with, with technology is once you replace technology with something new, only in using it and using the new thing and, and sort of putting the old thing aside, do you suddenly realize what the actual value of that older technology is in this case, sort of analog technologies. Right. Um, uh, and, and that value changes once it's, once it's been replaced, it, it, it almost acquires a new value. And so the, the value of the face-to-face now is that it isn't digital, right? Um, the value of the face-to-face is that it is, it is face-to-face and, and it brings those things that, um, that the digital doesn't. Yeah. What sort what sort of, what sort of um, improvements over digital does this face-to-face have? You know, let's, let's highlight some of those. Let's say you and I met and, um, you know, we were talking about the new Ghostbusters movie is going to have women in it. Mm-hmm. Would I threaten you with death for saying that <laughs> and then take your phone number and address and send it out to everybody I know and say I'm going to kill and rape you because you held that opinion if I was face-to-face with you? No, I wouldn't. I would mm. probably see the reaction in your face if I even ventured something like that and judge my opinion and the way I speak in that way because you're a human being. And when you're face-to-face, you have emotions. You, you see how people react. You feel it viscerally. You have empathy. You can't help but have empathy. You know, mm-hmm. People who don't have that sort of empathy are people either on the, on the spectrum of autism who can't calculate that or psychopaths, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the, the majority of us feel that. And, and so when you're with people in, in, in a, in a conversation, um, you know, you're getting all sorts of cues that aren't just the words that are coming out of their mouth. You're seeing their body language. You're seeing the way their faces, you see the way they react to what you say. You're able to engage with them on a human level and not just on the level of, you know, words and ideas, which by themselves don't constitute a conversation. Um, uh, and, and that, whether you're dealing with friends and family whether you're talking about social groups or, you know, a network of social people who share a similar interest um, or whether you're talking about sort of a larger, you know, you know, political consequences and conversations um, you know, that things can transpire in that, in that way. um, And in those conversations that you just can't replicate in the same way with digital. Yeah. You know, I mean, here we are, right. We're, we're, um, we're on Zencast or we're on zoom again, I'm able to see you, right? Um, is there is there something better about you know being in presence that this video call cannot capture, right? Of course, I understand. I understand your point about um, you know that empathy, right? But I mm-hmm. feel I feel some level of empathy towards you. It's 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 hard, yeah. <laughs> but no, I, but I it's feel a, some level of empathy. It's a mediated one, right? It is a it it is very. This is this is the sort of shell basic 1.0 version of conversation. But mm-hmm. if you and I were to be together in Los Angeles or Toronto or somewhere else and, and having this conversation, even recorded for the same podcast, it would be a very different conversation, right? Your body language, the way we talk, the conversation would be entirely different, even if you asked me the same questions. And that's yeah. because of the nature of conversation in the way that 
you can have a phone call with your, you know, your mother or your best friend or someone from work. And it's very different from a phone call uh, from that same conversation with that person face to face, right? You want the best example of this. It's the conference call. You know, you get four people together working on a project in a room at a table. Ideas are flying. Things are going. You actually accomplish something. What's a conference call? It's like a pointless, (laughs) worthless hell where I'm thinking of that YouTube video that they did. If, if conference calls happened in person, I'm going to have to right. post the link under this. Okay. Yeah. It's and like that's buffering. Right. It's, it's buffering. And it's, it's just this idea of like these awkward pauses. Cause there's no body language there. Nobody could read any cues. It's, 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 mm-hmm. you know, everything happens in this sort of darkness. And, and I think that's, Again, that's a good metaphor for. So, so for it's safe this. to say you're you're not a believer in the distributed team at the workplace because I know that's that's a trend, right? Now everyone there's benefits to it, of course, but and, and I think that's it, right? You have to measure what the benefits are. In certain ways, it it makes sense, you know. It it, it and certain things are actually more beneficial to it. So, if people are working separately on very specific project related tasks, mm. um then yeah, they go off and they can do their things. Uh, and that's, you know, that there's a value to that. And maybe that's, that works for them or it's better and more efficient. You know, I write books. My publisher is based in New York. Um, the designer of the book is based in Boulder, Colorado. My editor just moved back to the Boston area. So, you know, it's pretty rare that we're all getting together and sitting in a room and talking. But yeah, when it comes down to the key meeting about how they're going to market and sell the book, I fly to New York and take that meeting in person because it just wouldn't get anywhere on the phone or it wouldn't get to nearly what it needs to get to. What I need to have those in-depth conversations with my editor or my agent um, about what it is I'm going to work on, the sort of key idea around it. You know, I'm going to go and and make sure I have that meeting and sit down with them for an hour or two and and, and hash it out in a way that I can't on the phone. Um, but then I go and spend months on my own sitting at a keyboard, smacking away keys, putting words together, right? Mm. Um, and so I think, again, with the key to this and the key to the sort of value of analog that we've realized in an era when everything is available to us digitally is that, you know, that value is change. And it really is about judging when and which technology works best for you and judging it on its own merits, not judging it on the way that, you know, Silicon Valley salespeople essentially say, this is the new thing. And if you don't accept it, you're a Luddite, you're behind, you want to get ahead, you want to be innovative. So please buy Zoom, buy the Cisco system, buy, you know, switch everything to to online or whatever. It's actually judging things on its merits, um, which should make sense for a scientifically based industry, right? It's, you know, it's let's try this, let's do an experiment. What works better for me, for us, for this project, for this task, for my family? And sometimes it's digital, sometimes it's analog. Usually it's some sort of mix of both. And that just reflects the actual world that we live in, not some hypothetical fantasy world. Yeah, and you and you reference this in the book, right? I think, you know, the idea that someone writing about the power of analog or the resurgence of analog is a Luddite is easy for critics to to say, right? But you mentioned in the book this it's not binary. Yeah, right? you, we, we all we all benefit from technology and, you know, the march forward of technology. And there is some level of progress there. How And we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. But sometimes, you know, it goes too far or we're not truly evaluating the pros and cons of, you know, of these applications or these devices. And I think the example that you mentioned before with, you know, the election of Trump and the, the abuse of user data is a perfect example, right? Like Facebook may improve our ability to share events with people and therefore, you know, to actually come together in analog form, right? That's actually where I find most of my, um, most of my events. And I've deleted Facebook before and it has actually impacted my ability to, show up places. Mm-hmm. Um, however, you know, on the flip side, it's, it's collecting data about me and pushing me towards cohorts that are 
more like-minded or sending me information that's going to infuriate me because uh-huh. a meme has no, you know, desire to, um, to be right or wrong. It just needs to spread and fury and anger and rage help spread memes. Uh-huh. Um, and like, like attract, like that kind of mentality gets taken to a huge extreme online when, you know, Facebook and Google, create almost entirely unique internets for each one of us, Mm. um, you know, in, in our kind of digital lives. So, I, I mean, I appreciate what you're saying. It's, it's not one or the other, it's not zeros and ones. It's actually a healthy mix of the two. And what I think your book did is, you know, now two and a half years ago, I think it helped drive the conversation forward around, you know, let's actually evaluate this new tech with a healthy skepticism. Mm-hmm. so that we know the pros and the cons, we have an awareness, and thus we're able to um, to decide for ourselves what we want to do. Yeah, and I think that is going to be the way, you know, going forward. I mean, that's, you know, th- this technology, computer technology is going to continue to play a bigger role in our lives. Um, but because of that, you know, we need to judge what makes sense for us and, and, and judge, you know, its benefits and, and, and drawbacks and, and make those decisions, whether it's in our homes or at work or, or, you know, other places. Right. So for an example, it's, you know, like when those Amazon Alexa and all those smart speakers came out, you know, again, it's pushed as, Oh, this is great AI virtual assistants. And I think there's a lot of people who are like, Oh, cool. I need this great new gadget. And a lot of people I know are like, no, like, no, 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 no. I'm going to see how this plays out. Let's see what actually happens with this stuff. And then you hear all the stories of them being hacked and harvesting data and, and doing all this stuff, which of course is what it's designed for, right? Um, so it's like, does this, does well, the value I, I, I of this? Pa- I want to pause there because, because I think that's the reason why I'm doing this podcast is because that, of course, is not so apparent to everyone, mm-hmm. right? Especially in the way that this tech is marketed. Like Alexa... And Google Dot and these other technologies are marketed as a way to increase the convenience of your lifestyle, right? right. So you want groceries, you don't need to make a grocery list um, and go to the store. You just say, Alexa, groceries, eggs, milk, ye- uh, whatever, whatever yeast? else. Were you about to say yeast? I was going to say yeast. I'm like, who buys <laughs> yeast? <laughs> it's Passover. I'm thinking about eggs. <laughs> I need yeast. I need leavening. <laughs> and so, but seriously, I mean, you know, now, now, all of a sudden, the, the groceries are delivered at your door, right? And uh, and and so, I guess the point I'm trying to make is, it's not this. It's not as obvious to everyone. And so, you know, we need to keep having these conversations around. Okay, yes, it, Alexa adds convenience, but also Alexa's on all the time when she's in your house, yeah. and she's going to tell you know, company Z that you go to the bathroom every 30 minutes and they're going to send you, you know, uh, uh, you, maybe you should see a doctor about that, which is actually my, it's funny. My brother <laughs> has officially become the most Jewish conversation ever. Um, my brother is there were someone, I guess like his cell phone company was offering him free Google home or something. He's like, I'm just going to put it in my washroom to listen to, music in the shower <laughs> and, and then they'll like only send me like ads for metamucil or like <laughs> yeah, exactly he's getting all the soap advertisements pushed yeah in. exactly oh sounds like you need to exfoliate so <laughs> so i think it's important for all of us to kind of decide what our you know our habits and our um lines are when it comes to technology use so uh-huh. i'm curious you know what what kind of boundaries do you set in your life? Um, and also, you know, you have children. So what, what kind of boundaries do you set for your kids? Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, really for myself, it's so I've, I've really weaned myself away from social media um, over the past couple of years. I deleted it off my phone. What? What was your what was your guilty like, pleasure on social media? Face, I, you know, I was at Facebook and then increasingly Twitter, um, and between the two of those, yeah. Uh, um, 
And so you weaned yourself off entirely. Do you? Well, not entirely. Book? So, so now okay. when I started writing the book, I'm currently writing in January of this year. I was like, all right, I have like I have to be productive. I have a, like you know six hours of work that I have to do every day, and I don't have time mm-hmm. for sort of wasting it on this place, which is what I do. Right? I could justify by its work and my profile, but like it's wasting time. So I downloaded this plugin for my browser um, called Stay Focused, and it limits me to the set amount of time on social media each day. Ooh, I'm gonna uh, that. And that time is now. I started it at 45 minutes, and it that was too much. And now I have 10 minutes. So 10 cumulative minutes a day that I can spend on Twitter or Facebook, and then it blocks me off for the remainder of the 24 hours, right? It's called Stay Focused. Yeah. Um, it was a Chrome plugin. Uh, and that's great because I still get it. I still like, I'm there. I see, okay, whose birthday is it? Oh, wow, this person had a baby, blah, 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 blah. Okay, and that's it. It doesn't sort of suck me in. Um, uh, everyone's having a baby on Facebook. Everyone, everyone's getting my married age, and everyone's my having age, yeah. a baby. Um, everyone's having back surgery. Or everyone's on vacation. Back surgery and 40 birthday trips. So, um, you know, what, what, so, that, so that's been a, a sort of big control. But listen, like I still have my phone with me all the time. I'm still spending all the time on my computer. So it, it still is there, like this constant present in my life. And, and it is that notion of controlling it. Um, and so I think the family is a pretty firm limit. I really try to, you know, draw that line when I'm with my children, um, and with my wife to, to, to try to be present and, and stay away from it. And I do my best with that. I really do. But you know, it's, it's hard. Sometimes you're like, oh, if there's something going on, you got that phone, you take a quick glance while the kids are there. And then you look down, your kid's been talking to you for two minutes and you don't listen to them. Uh, and with my kids, I really, and this was based on a lot of the research I did around education and, you know, kids and screens. I really try to keep them away from it. How um, old are your kids? My daughter's turning six in about a, a three weeks and my son's two and a half. So she's, you know, she wants it. She wants yeah. the game on the phone. She wants to look at pictures. Um, he's sort of semi-oblivious to it. You know, they watch cartoons on Saturday Netflix, morning and right? Sunday morning. My Netflix went down actually last week and I can't get it back up and even Netflix can't figure out. So I'm now being forced into they know. They know. But they, they know. They, they know. They know like the word net Netflix oh, yeah. has become yeah. one of the earliest words like, of, yeah. of these kids. They know it. They know it's down with it. They know how to, you know, my daughter knows how to move around on it. Um <clears throat> and when they're when you're out, you know, like you're out at a restaurant or something and <clears throat> No, my kids are the kids destroying the restaurant. (laughs) Uh, They're not the dutiful children who are next door and, you know, on their iPad, staring at it with headphones and the parents enjoying a quiet meal. That is the cross that we as parents die on, right? That we have chosen Mm. that to be our sacrificial moment. And there are times when it is terrible. And there's times when we would like, okay, look at pictures on our phone. Like we don't have any games, but just like, take it just please like shut up right um but i think there's that temptation and and what happens is kids first of all you know it becomes it becomes a crutch it becomes a habit so i have friends who's like every morning their kid gets half an hour of ipad so the parents could get dressed but like that's a habit that then gets built into it right or a dinner every time they go out like a like a methadone yeah it's it's just it you know they have that right that's their thing um the other thing is and and there's probably some wonderful studies and science you can quote behind it, but I'm going to give you my own science. Okay. The more screen time kids have, the bigger assholes they become. They're <laughs> awful, awful, the formula awful creatures. <laughs> yeah. They're, they're like, you give the kid, you put the kids in front of a TV, you give them a computer, give them a tablet, you give them a phone. And, you know, get after an hour of that, they are just horrible human beings. And it's probably the same for us. Yeah. You try to take that away and they go batshit. Mm-hmm. They freak out. They start fighting with their siblings. They fight with you. Um, you know, it, it doesn't, it doesn't engender good social behavior. Uh, and I think you see it pretty, pretty basically with kids. So, you know, we set those limits and we try to adhere by them. Um, but there's a lot of Paw Patrol that goes on in this house. And that's, you know, listen, I watched a lot of cartoons as a kid too. So, and I played a lot of Nintendo. Um, Me too. You know, it's, it's about having those limits, right? It's it's about having those limits and, and having a time where the parents are like, all right, get outside, like go, 
Yeah, you know, I always found I always found like because I didn't we didn't I didn't have you know iPad iPhone when I was kind of going through my younger years, but there were kids whose parents didn't allow them to watch TV. Let's say right, right, and I always found it you know somewhat awkward when they would come over and you know, if the parent would say like no TV and then we'd have to figure out something yeah. else to do, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. Or if they did, yeah. they all of a sudden turned into monsters. Like a good analogy is I was at a birthday party mm. for my daughter. It's one of my daughter's friends a few weeks ago and they had a pinata and you know, there's these two girls who are twins and they're like the no sugar twins, right? They're like, they're never allowed refined sugar. Oh, they're super healthy. Oh no, I see where this is going. These kids, <laughs> It was like a colonial land grab. These two girls jumped into the middle of the floor with all the candy, <laughs> elbowed other kids, like physically elbowed them away because their parents weren't there and just like <laughs> laid down on their bellies and stuffed as much candy under their body mass as they could and just like lay there. Um, so yeah, you can have a bit of a, you know, there's, there's limits. Yeah. To like it. the rubber band snaps back. I feel like if it's, yeah. if it's, um, you know, it's, it's, I guess it's the, in the way we deliver it. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't have kids, but I have a niece and nephew and they're around the same age as your kids. Um, and, uh, you know, w when we're out to dinner together with my sister and my brother-in-law, if the kids are going crazy, it's like, just give them the iPad. <laughs> you yeah. Know? yeah, you know it's going to work. Yeah, you know it works, but it's, um, but obviously we don't, we don't know what the effects are. There is science, I think, that's showing certain aspects you know, of, um, you know, certain social behaviors or antisocial behaviors. We know the effects aren't good, yeah. right? It, you know, they can, they, I don't, you know, they're probably not disastrous, but we know it's not positive social behavior. Hmm. And we know that from, I'm just curious, our lives as adults, like, I'm just curious if these kids are developing like superhuman you know, powers. No, see, that's like, the, that's the, and, and this is the thing, again, this is the sales pitch, right? This is what, you know, the ed tech people have been selling and everyone is like, oh, well, if you don't give your kid an iPad every day, how are they going to prepare for the computers of the future? How are they going to, how are they going to be, you know, able to work in Silicon Valley? It's like, do you think that like, Jobs yeah, <laughs> grew up with a goddamn iPad yeah. or Bill Gates, right? They were out playing outside and then they got into computers and whatever. You know, it, it, it's not like every, every person who becomes a lawyer or an accountant was like playing lawyer as a child. I mean, or, well, I there's, a, there's, a, there's a line, right? Like there is educational material on those devices. If they're on that device watching a YouTube video of another kid opening gifts for two hours, yeah, right, which is like the most popular social media influencer in the world is some kid that now has his own line of toys, just like popping open toys all day. Yeah, I don't think that's really training them for the computers. Of the no, future. it's training them for consumption. My daughter watches videos of LOL dolls, which is a fresh cancer. Oh, I opened my fresh, first LOL doll two days ago. Cancer pumped out of China's factories. It's, yeah, they, it's captivating my life. So, so much plastic wrapping on oh, that thing. It's God. like six that's layers. It's, that's, the LOL is for the parents. It's, 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 yeah, it's like the analog social media for kids. It's awful. But, you know, she watches like people playing with them and opening them and kids doing things about them. And it's like, it doesn't, there's no benefit there, right? It's pure, it's yeah. entertainment. It's like, what, what did He-Man train us for? Nothing. Um, <laughs> yeah. He might've trained us to be, you know, better men, I guess, or, or manlier men. It didn't really work out. For I was going to make them joke. About, <laughs> uh, anyway, that would have been. <laughs> yeah. I wish you made it. No, no, no. <laughs> Can't do it. These days. But, um, uh, so, so, but you know, it was interesting because when I, when I researched in the book about ed tech and the ed tech world and technology in schools, you know, this is what a lot of schools have persistently rushed into, um, mm -hmm. you know, every generation, whether it was, you know, with PCs or, or, you know, with internet in schools or tablets or other devices. And, and now you're seeing it with the sort of, uh, online learning programs, this is going to prepare us for the future. This is the future of education. This is what we have to do. Forget about art class. We're going to cancel that. Forget about drama. We're, we're spending all our money on these devices. And then, you know, they rush into it headlong in this belief that this is what we need. 
And then the evidence comes out that it actually does nothing better and in many cases is worse for the actual education of those students. And this is the same at, you know, the the early childhood education, the elementary education, the the high school level up to the, you know, university level. Um, but time and again, that cycle repeats itself. Maybe that's maybe you just identified one of the main issues here is we're always we're constantly thinking about preparing for the future mm-hmm. that we're forgetting are not observing what's happening in the present. Ooh. Mm. You like that? Yeah, that's good. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. Right? That it's, you know, it's like, you know, buy the technology for the world you'd live in, not the world you want to live in. And I think you see that when people adopt stuff so readily, you know, for the future, um, uh, it has a cost, right? There's a reason to wait and be patient. You know, there's there's you know, it, it doesn't, it doesn't always favor the first adopters um, because that technology takes us a while to figure out how to use it. You know, you were in the, or you're in the blockchain world, um, mm-hmm. you know, and, 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 and that's still a ways away from actually people actually figuring out how to genuinely properly use that technology. And if you rushed into, you know, turning your iced tea company into a blockchain company, um, you know, you're, you're, you're kind Long of Island blockchain company. Yes. Your Long Island blockchain, Long Island blockchain company. <laughs> Is that what I sound like? I, I think so, yeah. Or like a Billy Joel. Song. After a couple of drinks, maybe. Yeah, a couple of ice and a Billy Joel song or two. Um, oh yeah. Uh, Love a good Billy Joel song. You know, it's, it, it, but I think Always again, it's, it's this idea of like, how could we future proof ourselves? What could we adopt today? And so it it goes from one buzzword to another and one thing to another. And like, eventually that technology is going to find its right form and get to you and you'll be able to use it and you're going to be okay. But what can you use today? What's going to make you happier, more productive, better? What's going to work for you now? And some of that might be some of that new digital technology. And some of that might be something that's as simple as a piece of paper and a pen. What works for you? Um, Nothing. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> great Obviously, well Stealth it's like hatred, work, i think really. uh, <laughs> work. The, an ancient technology an ancient self-hatred technology. yes <laughs> passed down well. generation to generation um well it depends what i'm doing right so let's say writing a book which is what i spend you know every three years doing and then you know go out and tour about it promote it and try to sell how long does it take to write a book like typically you're a great writer, by the way. Oh, I, know, I, 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 I just have to throw it out. Oh, there. Yeah. I love the pros. The pros. <laughs> um, uh, you know, generally from the beginning of the process of thinking about an idea and working through a proposal to the time the book comes out, it's three, two to three years, right? Two um, to three years. Yeah, okay. of research and writing and editing. Most of it's research. For me, yeah, because I'm a journalist. Um, okay. Uh, so, you know, there's different parts of that process that I use different technologies for, right? When I first start thinking about that idea, I'm just going through notepads and, and scribbling down words and thoughts and ideas and just going through it to get it out. And then I'll take those things and circle what I like and think about it and have conversations and start typing it out in Microsoft Word and refine that and print it out and circle things again and, and go back and forth in that until I have what works. And then... You know, once I'm underway with the book and the publisher's on board, I, I, you know, will will go out and do interviews. And you know, most of those interviews, if I do them in person, I bring a notebook um, and I write as I have conversations, and I don't record it um, and I don't videotape it. You know, it's it's very much the conversational thing. Because I found that when I do turn on the recording device, uh, or if I do sit there and type on a laptop, which I tried early on and stopped doing, the conversation changes. People put up walls, yeah. right? And I want it to be as natural as possible. And I want to be able to express, get the ideas that I need down, and, and that works in pen and paper. Um, do you use Moleskin? No. I use these notebooks that I have made for me by this company in Toronto because I like the spiral notebook because I need to be able to fold it over backwards mm-hmm. so I can write standing up while I'm walking through a factory or a farm or wherever I'm interviewing someone. Um, and then, you know, and then I'll take all that and go through the notes and go through all my research, you know, many of which are phone conversations that I had over zoom or on the phone. And I'm, you know, just typing those out as I'm writing them or recording some of them. 
Uh, I'll go through all that research. I'll go through it. And then I'll take giant sticky notes that I go to buy at, you know, Office Depot. Or How or big are the sticky notes? Are they like, like four, I'm looking at one right now. Head? Yeah. They're, yeah. I don't so. think I've ever seen one of these before. They're like this. Oh yeah. That's giant. Right. That's like the size of a human body. This is, you know, about a chapter of the book and I'm just going through and getting out ideas. This is about our, our mutual oh, friend, cool. John Clippinger and his company that you worked with. And oh, this is about job. the, you know, the second last chapter of the book. And, um, and that's just like, okay, how can I get these ideas out in just some visual way? Uh, bef- because I can't just plunge into writing, you know, 8,000 words right from the get-go. I need to like take all these ideas and organize them in some visual way that I can see. And I've done also done it with, you know, 30 post, 40 post-it notes on my wall and it's all imperfect, but it's just like, here's all the ideas. Okay. Now I can move them around. Now I can see them. Now I can go back into word and write. And then, you know, then it's doing all of that in Microsoft word for months at a time and then editing it and then printing it out and then going. So it's like, it, it moves back and forth between digital, analog, digital, analog, digital, analog. And that's what works for me. And that is totally different from what works for the writer down the street or the writer, you know, this writer or that writer. Everybody's workflow is different. You just live on, you just live on a block of writers. Yeah. Just the writer I, think the I think I'm the only one um, <laughs> as far as I know. But, you know, this is something that works differently for everyone. And, and I think the idea that there's one technology is the perfect technology for the way we work and everybody should work this way is a really naive and foolish thing to do. Well, there's a couple of things you just said there. I mean, the first, the first is there's not one solution. Mm. And that's something that, that keeps coming up. Um, it, you know, this is now, I think, my eighth episode and. I'm always like, what's the answer, you know, or, right. or what is the prescription that you would give? And it sounds like it's, it's kind of a, a right size, not a one size fits all type. Well, and, and again, um, that is, as you alluded to earlier, right? That is the binary language of digital, right? In digital things mm-hmm. are a one or a zero. It is an Apple or a Samsung, right? That there is no gray area. There's no in between. Um, and everything has to fit within that perfect box because that's how software works. But in the rest of the world, you use a combination of different things, identities, ideas, the way you work, the way you live is fluid and constantly changing and filled with all sorts of nuance. And you can't just encapsulate all that nuance in a piece of technology. So, you know, we're sold this solutionism by Silicon Valley. And we're sold it in the same way that Coca-Cola sells us a lifestyle, right? It's, it's, it is consumerist solutionism. Um, uh, this is the solution for your problems, you know? And, and there's no one solution for the problems. It, 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 there, there are things that can help in certain ways, but there's always a trade-off. There's always a trade-off. Yeah, and I think we're, we're experiencing that today is what we're seeing is you know, the march forward towards solution and then the pullback of, oh, wait, these were the trade-offs that we didn't realize yeah. we were making. This solution you know, created a problem. What's the solution to this? Yeah. More technology. Within it. <laughs> yeah. And it seems like it is, right? Like you even met, you know, I, I, so I've interviewed two people. Both of them are really good friends. One of them is taking the technologist approach to solving some of the problems created by technology, mm-hmm. similar to the the Google, Google Chrome plugin that you mentioned earlier, which is like, you know, I'm going to tell you when you've used too much of this. Yeah. And I'm almost going to be a timer to stop you. The other is saying, you know, the t- solution to these problems is actually more time with humans in the real world um, and taking that approach and encouraging people to put their technology away and then communicate in person. And I think both of those make, make sense. Yeah. And again, it's in combination, right? What do you do? You know, and this is, I think, the value of the sort of analog pleasures and, and, and things like books and records and, um, and drawing and, you know, all, all these different, different technologies, board games that have come back. It's like, what do you do? What do you do when you put your phone down? Like, we're not all going to go sit in, you know, 
uh, a yoga pose and do our Kundalini Adi Shakti, Adi Shakti mantra um, for Why 30 not, minutes. Though? It's so fun. <laughs> um, so, right? No. Not everybody can do that. Uh, you know, so what do you do? And I think there's this fear that if we do put that thing away, what do we do? Who am I? How am I going to entertain myself? What do I do if there's a moment of silence? It's, it's more than a fear. It's actually, um, it's actually chemically ingrained, you know, like it's, so on these, these brick retreats, um, that my friend, you know, hosts, which are these phone free kind of events. It's like, Brazil, Russia, India, China. No, not that brick. Brick like uh like a you you turn your phone into a brick, you just yes. turn it off. Right. Um yes. but yeah, not that. Um you know, I've seen people have have like legitimate breakdowns mm. um or have mentioned that, you know, I, I had to go back to my tent to cry because I I I was in a conversation for ten minutes and then I started getting that familiar feeling of yeah anxiety and I reached for my phone and it wasn't there. And so I walked away and I realized, wow, like I realized that I've been using this thing as a crutch unconsciously, Yeah, you know, to take me out of these moments of boredom or anxiety. And I think that we all, we all fear that kind of that silence as you, as you referenced that, like, you don't, you know, just because you put your tech away, doesn't mean you have to sit in silence. It's like, you can still do stuff. There's a world of wonderful things out there. And I think we forget that those are the things that we get the most from. Like we, you know, what is a memory you have of social media? I have memories on social media. But what I don't are your memory of social media? Is there a time where you're like, oh, I remember that time I was having that great conversation with someone or that connection <laughs> I made. You don't, right? Everything out there that matters, even everything on social media, even everything on Instagram is the stuff that happens in the real world. Um, uh, it's that one. That's the only one that matters. It's the only world that matters. Right. Um, and I think that's, you know, the thing that, that we, we had lost or we're losing sight of and, and, and maybe in some way we're sort of realizing that and trying to reclaim it. I think that we are trying to reclaim it. You know, I used to work in the, in the music festival industry as, um, some listeners might, might be familiar with, um, you know, I think the resurgence of music festivals in a lot of way was in a lot of ways was because people were craving that connection. They were craving that in-person time um, in its own way. It's become consumerized, um, you know, like many, many movements get co-opted. I think, you know, Instagram has has had that effect on festivals. You know, you go you go to Coachella and you're in the front, the front of a stage. And I would say maybe 75% of the people right. are recording on their phones. I was there. And you know, it's that classic right. image of just the phone is up. Right. And, and oftentimes it's like these festivals can be really challenging too. Like people are, you lose your friends, you know, you can't find them. There's 130,000 people. You don't get to the house. You lose your phone, all these things. You took the bad acid. Yeah. You took the bad acid. Exactly. You're having, you're having, you're having a terrible trip. And then all of a sudden it's like a year later, the only thing that you, you remember is that curated photo you took on Instagram that reminds you how much fun you had at that festival, even if it was possibly like one of the worst experiences of your life. And it's easy to forget, you know, because, because of this weird thing of social media where it's, we're just presenting these avatars of our experiences. Yeah. yeah it's been interesting as I stopped, I stopped posting photos a long time ago to social media. Um, I think it was after I, I do you take, do you take photos still? I, I take photos. Yeah, of course. I have, I have kids. Okay. It's just endless an endless dream of my children. Um, <laughs> but I stopped posting them to social media. Uh, I think it was, I, there was a point like when Instagram was, I don't know, just acquired by Facebook and it was a year or so into it. And they like, they quietly changed their terms of service where they're like, Hey, we own your photos. And someone just, do you, do you read the terms of service? No, God, no. But someone, someone, um, someone, you know, discovered it and, and it was all over the news. And I was like, you know what? I don't need this. I don't need this information out there. I don't need my photos of me. So unless it's like, here's my, cover of my book coming out or here's something about me and work wise. Like I just don't, it's not there. Definitely no pictures of my kids. Like none of that. Um, 
And so it's interesting. Like I take photos, but you know, I'm not posting it. And, and the biggest time I see this is every year I go away on a ski trip with, um, uh, six friends and, uh, two of them are really heavy Instagram users. Um, and it's, it got to the point where two years ago on a trip to Jackson Hole, they were like editing photos in on the chair in you know on every ride up. And it's blizz, it's a blizzard. And it's in, just in their hands everything like no, but it's just like everything was about that. Everything was about that. You know, getting that shot, doing that thing. It sort of changed it, and I was just able to ski and enjoy myself. Did you say anything to them in that moment? I tried to, and and this is the thing, right? You can't. You can't be like the parent to your friends. You can't be like, hey, Dan, like, come on. And he's like, what the hell? Oh, Mr. Analog. You know, that's what I get. Or with my, bro- with my brother who yeah. is, you know, very into Twitter um, for his work. And that's part of what he does. And it's become a bit of his thing, but he's on it all the time. And it's really hard to have those conversations. You really can't, you can't do it because you become, you know, you don't want to become the school marm. I, I think I think that's true. I think you know uh, there's there's this famous quote. I'm blanking on it, but I think it's it's for the workplace. It's like offer criticism mm-hmm. generally and praise individually. Something something like. Did that. you read that on the wall of a WeWork you were at recently? I actually have it on my wall right now. My analog phone. Okay. <laughs> I'll get um, it. Well, th- so so my point is, you know, I think if if we set rules for ourselves. Like, yeah, for example, I've been doing this recently and it's the response has been at least in person, pretty positive. Who knows if these people will ever have dinner with me again. But if I go out to dinner with a person, a friend, you know, a coworker or whatever or group, I just say <clears throat> love interest, love interest. There's there's only one. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, hi, Jenny. Um, I, I just say, look, like, you know, I've been making my my meals phone free. Um, I find that I have better conversations that I'm more engaged. I'm less distracted. Um, so like if you, you know, w- would like it, if you could do that with me, um, you know, there's nothing worse than sitting across the dinner table. Also gluten free, sugar free and dairy free. Is that what I am? Am I like, welcome to LA. Vegan guy? <laughs> yeah. well, actually this, I just did this at a vegan restaurant two nights ago. So there you well, go. There will be no, there no joy here. I'm sorry. All we have is conversation because this people. Uh, yeah. But this is the challenge, right? Because I, but I, there's nothing worse for me. There are worse things, but there's, there's there's just this it's terrible when you're sitting at the table with someone and the phone comes out plop down on the table right right in front of them and you know they put the phone so the screen's facing down as though like that's you know that's a sign that they're they want to pay attention but then every few minutes it's not even their fault and it's unconscious they're checking the time and perhaps that's just because i'm not providing them with engaging conversations so right. maybe i shouldn't be doing this podcast but but i think it's just automatic right and and it, it ruins it for them and, and i've been that person that's why i'm trying to do this because i've been that guy and i mentioned this in previous episodes like i will leave a dinner table to go to the bathroom to like check my email yeah you know if i'm feeling like a little bit like i i have something at work or you know that i need to get to and this dinner is taking just a touch too long. I feel that that, yeah. that pull of my device. And, and that was a social behavior that just happened overnight. And and this is, you know, brings me back to what you had talked about in the book, you know, that that dinner party I had at a friend's apartment, you know, in 2000, 2007, right? And all of a sudden my wife, who's then my girlfriend and I were the only couple of the you know, four couples at the table who weren't on their blackberries. And it was just this thing that I had never seen or experienced before. And it was like, well, this is what the rest of the life is going to be like pretty much. Um, but it seems to have changed a little bit, a little bit. It seems to have, there seems to be a little of a realization now that, you know, that for, for certain people, for a certain generation, that that, mm isn't necessarily cool. And I think it changes by what society you're in, by what country you're in, by who your group is and and social things. But, you know, the only way you can do it is to lead by example. And if you're like, look, it's like being a vegetarian or vegan. It's like, I'm not going to lecture you. I'm not going to, you know, you know, 
like preach to you, I'm going to just do this. But look at my vegan superpowers. Yeah, but (laughs) you should see my poop. It is. (laughs) So that's a that's about an hour. I know. know (laughs) We had a hard hard stop. Yeah, let's not everybody poops. I actually did an episode with um, with Mickey Agarwal about uh, her company. Hello, Tushy. I uh, I am a big fan of the bidet toilet seat. Um, as I, oh, there it is. Is that a Toto toilet? No, it's Brondell, which is, um, I think it's an American one. Uh, it's like half the price of those in Canada. Yes. (laughs) It's half the price. We have, we have, uh, anuses in Canada. Yes. (laughs) And (laughs) close. Well, well, before before we go, what um, what, what's next for you? Uh, so right now, I'm currently um, finishing up the first draft of the next book I have coming out in um, just uh, around a year from now. It's called "The Soul of an Entrepreneur," uh, mm. and it is about work and life beyond the startup myth. So it, it really is about um, what what it means to be an entrepreneur today when that word, especially through social media and through Silicon Valley has become commodified and, um, and really associated almost exclusively with the Silicon Valley model of starting up and being an entrepreneur when 99% of the entrepreneurs who, you know, work for themselves, have their own businesses that are out there in the economy and in the world don't fit into that mold. And so it's a bit of reclaiming what it means and examining how we got to that point. I love that. And I would love, I would love for you to come back on and hopefully we could do it in person to talk about it. Once you get all that Squarespace money and this thing gets, uh, yeah, exactly. I need it. Zoom, zoom. If you're listening, um, or Zencaster, I don't know. I don't know if I'll do sponsorships. We'll see. I have to, I have to think about that because some podcasters that I really, really respect don't do it. They do the Patreon route, right? Or many of them have now deleted Patreon and, are going a different route of oh. making, you know donation straight on the page. Yeah, because Patreon was censoring and some really? people are, are against censoring oh, okay. speech. I didn't know that. I don't know where I don't know where I stand on that one. There's certain speech that I think, you know, if we're if we're promoting it, it's it's ch- anyways, it's a slippery slope. But um I really appre- I really like that your topic because I think we are in a phase where we're promoting toxic entrepreneurship mm. a little bit. Ooh. Like the idea of fake it till you make it. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously we've seen what happens with that, with fire and with, with Theranos when it kind of, when it goes too far. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's, it's the worship of a certain type of entrepreneurship and this idealized mythologized version of it, which has kind of been sold to us and is the thing that, that people are chasing. Um, but you know, entrepreneurship's a much broader, realer, more human experience than that, and um, and and so it, it it tries to look beyond that um, to you know all sorts of different entrepreneurs from Syrian refugees and immigrants here in Toronto who've sort of gone into the food business to um, people who do it in sort of family businesses or people who are doing it specifically for you know values. Um, but again, beyond the headlines, beyond the hashtags to the reality of, of what it means to be an entrepreneur. Awesome. Well, I'm looking forward to reading it. Thanks, man. And I'm looking forward to having you back on. Thank you. And thanks. Thanks so much for coming on. It's, it's been, uh, it's been really fun. A pleasure. Um, my invitation to Toronto you- still stands. Thank you for listening. I hope that you enjoyed that episode and I hope that you're enjoying the podcast. It's been a really fun ride so far. I just get so excited every time I meet some of these incredible people and just love sharing their stories and and ideas with you all. You can learn more about the show at thelookuppodcast.com. That's T-H-E, lookuppodcast.com. You can follow me on social media at Wark Meinstein, W-A-R-C-M-E-I-N-S-T-E-I-N on both Twitter, Instagram, um, and Medium, and Facebook. Uh, We have a Facebook page for the show as well, The Look Up Podcast um, on Facebook, so check us out. Uh, You can also subscribe to our mailing list on the website 
for more future updates. If there's anything from the show that you want to catch, I've posted that in the show links for you to check out. And if there's any way that I can improve, please let me know. Feel free to reach out. If you have any guest recommendations, please let me know. Other than a couple of individuals who are helping me out in the background, you know, this is a passion project and I'm always open to feedback and any kind of support. I want to thank Sam Palumbo and Patch Kid Music for the sound editing and the intro and outro song that he created. And I want to thank Hello There Collective for their support on my social media. You can check them out at hellotherecollective.com. All right, that's enough for me. I'm sure you're ready to go on to your next activity. Thank you for listening. And please come back again next week for another episode of the Look Up podcast.